February is a black history month uh, in the United States. I don't know if you realize, but Black History Month has a long history in this country. It began with Negro History Week back in 1926. Some of you remember the name Carter Woodson, uh, a scholar of African American history who uh, in 1916 began publishing the journal of Negro History. And he realized that school kids in America didn't know this part of American history. And uh, so he created Negro History Month in 1926. It has evolved uh, into what we now call Black History Month. I think we have trouble in this country talking about black history um, because our legacy uh, in this country is a mixed legacy. We have a lot of racial sin on our consciences in this country. And so sometimes we want to avoid these questions. And, and I think that's a problem for us. Here in this congregation, this congregation was founded the very month that the American Civil War broke out. The racial situation in the United States had been brewing for a long time. And in, in April of 1861, uh, uh, this country split into two parts. This congregation was formed that month, and our first pastor, two years after he had been here, Pastor Mingus, uh, left this church to go be a missionary amongst African Americans in the South, the parts of the South that were being uh, newly uh, liberated by uh, Union forces. Um, in some sense, that's that's on the plus side of the register, but on the other side of that register here at that church, here at this church, is it would be another 144 years before this church installed an African American as an elder. So we live with this legacy in this country, and it's a legacy that we need to be aware of, and that we need to honor, and that we need to move forward in as we recognize uh, the role of African Americans uh, in the history of this country. So I'm thrilled by a, a Black History Month. Um, I like history in general, um, but I think this is a, a tremendous opportunity to really dig into an important part of our history. One other thing I should say is, is that the Revelation Bible Study will be meeting tonight. This is off schedule, but because of the Super Bowl, we changed it around. All right, so the so uh, Revelation Bible Study will be meeting tonight here uh, at the church. All right, our New Testament reading this morning will be from Romans chapter 1. I will begin at 14 and I will run through... Verse, it says 17, but I'm going to read 18 as well. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray.
Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, not everyone who believes in God will spend eternity with God. I don't know if you've ever thought about that fact, but it's an important truth to consider because there's nothing more important than that we make sure that we will spend eternity with God. In Mark 8.36, Jesus said, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? There are a lot of things that we value in this life, and many of them are genuinely important, but all of the things that we love in this life pale by comparison to our eternal destiny. It was really wonderful to see the Philadelphia Eagles win their first Super Bowl last Sunday. But how much more wonderful was it to see the players on that team stand before cameras on national television and give glory to God and profess faith in Jesus Christ. Because, yes, the Super Bowl is wonderful, but what good is it for someone to gain the world football championship and yet forfeit their souls? Our souls are going to live forever. Whether we live forever with God in eternal light of glory or we live forever separated from God in eternal darkness, because our souls will live forever, nothing is more important than making sure that we spend eternity with God. We need to get this right. And so it's important to not be naive. It's important to understand that not everyone who believes that there is a God will spend eternity with God. The Bible tells us of two kinds of people who might know about God or who might believe in God, but will, stand, will still spend eternity separated from God. One kind is called a legalist. Those are people who pretend that they're meeting the standards of God's law. People who pretend that they're better than they really are. And the other kind is called an antinomian. These are people who deny God's law, who say there is no law, who deny that the law exists. According to Scripture, both legalists and antinomians will miss out on heaven. Let's talk about legalism first because churches tend to have more legalists than antinomians. During his earthly ministry, Jesus was strongly opposed by a religious group called the Pharisees. These were extremely pious Jews, people who certainly believed in God, people who were serious about studying God's word, people who were very exacting in keeping God's law. And yet, Jesus reserved his harshest language for these people. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus pronounces seven woes against the Pharisees. Some of these are very familiar to you. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, outwardly appearing beautiful, but inside filled with dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected weightier matters of the law. But here's the most devastating woe of them all. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the gate of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves, nor will you allow those who would enter to go in. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. The words of Jesus, not my words. What's Jesus' point? That these Pharisees won't be in heaven. And that the people following the teachings of the Pharisees will be lost too. Jesus' point is that these people who believed in God, who believed in the Bible, who were very religious, that these people will be lost. That should catch our attention. Because what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? There is nothing more important than that we make sure that we will spend eternity with God. We need to get this right. So where do the legalists go wrong? Well, first they imagine that they're more righteous than they really are. They fool themselves into thinking that their performance and perfection satisfies God's standard. But Romans 3.10 tells us none is righteous. No, not one. Second, because... They imagine themselves to be so righteous, they miss out on the real righteousness which is offered them in the gospel. Romans 10.3 describes these people as, quote, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They're too perfect to ask for help. They're too perfect to ask for mercy. But when their lives are measured against the true standard of God, every one of them is found to have missed the mark. Churches are full of legalists, just as the synagogues in Jesus' day were full of Pharisees. A less common error, but not unknown among Christians, a very common error amongst error amongst people who are outside of the church is what we call antinomianism. Antinomians deny that there is a divine law. Psalm 14.1 describes antinomians in this way. The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt and do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Because there's no God, because there's no divine law, we can do whatever we please. In the Old Testament prophet Hosea, we hear God say to Israel, were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. What is this stuff, God? All these rules and regulations. You've got to be kidding me. Paul describes antinomian people at the end of Romans chapter 1, where he writes, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness. They do, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. These are the people who not only sin, but organize celebrations and are proud of their sins. Legalism and antinomianism, two opposite ways of missing the gospel. In 1519, Martin Luther, <clears throat> was a young Roman Catholic monk. He was also a university professor. And he was teaching a series of, 
of lectures, he was giving a series of lectures on the book of Romans. And in the course of this series of lectures, Romans 1.17, which we read this morning, all of a sudden snapped into focus for him, and the gospel and all of its scripture made sense for him in a way that he had totally missed before. Luther described that experience in this way. All at once, I felt that I had been born again and entered into paradise through the open gates, immediately I saw the whole of Scripture in a different light. In our reading from Romans chapter 1, Paul says three things. Number one, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Number two, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And number three, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, we talked about the first two last Sunday. So this week, we're going to turn our attention to this third truth. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the truth that opened the gates of paradise for Luther. And it is a failure to grasp this truth, which keeps those gates closed for so many people. For people like the Pharisees. So I want us to pay close attention to the meaning of this passage. Now the word righteousness is one of those church words. It's one of those words that we use in church. And I'm not so sure we know what we're talking about. I'm always wary of church words. And I think that we should always be able to replace church words with words that we use from ordinary life. The word in Greek is dikaiosune, which means what is right or what is just or what is proper or what is virtuous. As a monk, Luther read his Bible in the Latin translation of St. Jerome. That translation used the word justitia or justice. And justice is doing what is right or what is proper. What Luther read when he read Romans 1.17 is this. In the gospel, the justice of God is revealed. And here's what Luther said about that. I hated that word, justice of God. Which I had been taught to understand as referring to that justice by which God is just and by which he punishes sins and the unjust. I hated that word. Justice is a funny thing. Justice is what's fair and what's right, and we love justice when it's dished out to other people. This whole Me Too movement is about justice. It's about innocent people coming forward and telling the truth about people who have sexually harassed and sexually abused them. And when those abusers are exposed in the court of public opinion when they are shamed on social media, when they lose their jobs and resign their elected offices and face criminal charges, we cheer and we say, justice is done. We love justice, at least when it's dished out to other people. But what happens when we are the ones who are called to account? What happens when we are the ones who stand before the bar of justice and have our sins exposed? 
What happens when the condemnation of a divine hashtag justice campaign points its accusing finger at us? I hated that word, justice of God, Luther wrote. Why? Because I felt that before God I was a sinner with an extremely troubled conscience. While he was a monk, you might know this story, Luther spent hours and hours every day in the confession booth, confessing his sins to a priest, eager to do whatever penance that the priest might assign for the satisfaction of his sins. He wanted to be right with God. He wanted to make sure that he reached heaven one day, but he still felt burdened. It is absolutely the case that people who have a clearer vision of the holiness of God also have a clearer vision of their own sinfulness. People who are very far away from God rarely think that they're sinful. And people who are entirely cut off from God aren't troubled in their consciences at all. But that's not Luther. Luther was a man pursuing God. And God was at work in his life, and Luther knew that he was sinful, and he was desperate to be right with God. And when Luther comes to Romans 1.17 and heard that in the gospel the righteousness or the justice of God was revealed, he was deeply unsettled. Luther wrote, I couldn't be sure that God was appeased with my satisfactions, or his good works, or his, his uh, penance. I did not love, no, rather I hated The just God who punishes sinners. I grumbled vehemently. I got angry at God. I said, why does God heap sorrow upon sorrow through the gospel and through the gospel threaten us with his justice and his wrath? I know people who feel the same way Luther does. Maybe that's how you feel. That God sets up this impossible standard to follow and then condemns us when we fail to meet that standard. Sometimes people think that the God of the Old Testament is a forbidding, judging God. We have the law of Moses. It has 613 rules. And if we break just one of the rules, we've broken the whole law. What chance do we have? But if you read the New Testament carefully, you'll see that Jesus actually ups the ante. And he makes it harder. The law of Moses says, do not commit adultery. But the law of Jesus says, if you have lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. The law of Moses says, do not murder. But the law of Jesus says, if you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. What chance does anyone have in meeting that standard of justice and righteousness? The Pharisees paid a tithe even on the herbs in their garden. That's how serious they were about their own righteousness. But Jesus says in Matthew 5.20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What do we do with that? In Luke 18.26, we read the response of some people who are in a crowd that Jesus is preaching to when he's preaching about this seemingly impossible standard of righteousness. And they say, who then can be saved? I think Luther was precisely at that point of despair. 
He believes in God. He wants to follow God's law. But he knows that he fails all too often. And he knows that God is just. We love justice when it's dished out to other people. But when it's directed at us, it can cause us to despair. It can cause us to become angry with God. Jesus, however, answers the people who asked, who then can be saved? By saying, what's impossible with you is possible with God. And that's the key to this puzzle. It is not possible for you and me to meet the demands of God's law, but what is impossible with us is possible with God. Luther writes, I was raging with wild and disturbed conscience. I was constantly badgering St. Paul about that spot in Romans 1 and anxiously wanted to know what he meant. I meditated night and day on those words until at last, by the mercy of God, I began to understand that in this verse, the justice or righteousness of God is that by which the justified person lives by a gift of God, that is, by faith. And then he writes, all at once, I felt as if I had been born again. Romans 1.17 says, for in it, the gospel The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What Luther discovered is that Paul in this verse isn't talking about the righteousness or justice by which God judges or condemns us in a divine hashtag campaign. But he's talking rather about the righteousness that God gives us, gives to guilty people by faith. By faith in Jesus Christ, we receive from God a righteousness that we cannot accomplish on our own. Luther calls it an alien righteousness. It is God's righteousness given to us, placed on us, put in us by union with Christ through faith. Jesus lived a perfect life. He never sinned. And by faith in Him, we are united with Him and receive from Him all that He has, including His righteousness. We're not saved by our own righteousness. We're saved by the righteousness of our Savior. Luther concludes this passage by saying, I now exalted in this sweetest word, the justice, the righteousness of God, with as much love as before I had hated it with hate. This phrase of Paul was for me the very gate of paradise. Jesus tells us that the Pharisees will not see the kingdom of heaven. And by their false teaching, they close the gates of paradise for others as well. They were so busy trying to prove their own righteousness that they missed out on the righteousness that Jesus was offering them. For as Jesus says, what is Impossible with man is possible with God. The Pharisees strove to fulfill the law of God, but the law, which uncovers and makes obvious our sins, can never justify us. The legalist will never be good enough. Without a doubt, the Pharisees knew this in their heart. For why else were they so interested in proving to the world how good they were by making a grand public show of their prayers and fastings and charitable contributions, what we this day call virtue posturing or virtue signaling? On the outside, they were shiny and clean. 
But on the inside, they were rotten to the core. And Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. And as God says in 1 Samuel 16, 7, people judge by what's on the outside, but God looks at the heart. So what do we do with all of this? There are two ways to miss out on the gospel. One is legalism, and one is antinomianism. Legalism is what the Pharisees tried. It's what many Christians try. Legalism is an attempt to live so purely according to God's law that our consciences will be eased and we'll think that we're good enough to reach heaven in our own righteousness. Antinomianism denies that there is a law. It says, well, either there is no God or if there is a God, he doesn't really care about how we live. Both alternatives to the gospel are lies from the pit of hell and both are doomed to failure. But thanks be to God, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. In the gospel, we learn that the law of God is as unchanging as God himself. But because we are fallen creatures, we continue to do what God forbids and we fail to do what God commands. And so God, in his mercy, sent his son to do two things for us. First, Jesus lived a perfect life. And he gave us an example of how to live. And second, Jesus bore the wrath of God against the sins of the world on the cross. When we are united with Christ through faith, we receive both of those things. We receive the perfect righteousness of Jesus and we receive the full forgiveness of all of our sins. And when Almighty God, the giver of the law and the judge of the world looks at us, when he looks at those of us who've been united with Christ through faith, he sees only perfect righteousness. He sees the perfect justice of his own son. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul writes, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Ephesians 2.9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. So as I close, let me offer two invitations and one encouragement. First, if you feel oppressed by the demands of the justice of God, if God's law feels like an impossible standard to meet and you're tempted to throw it out the window and say, I can't believe in a God who's so hard to please or I can't believe in a Bible that has so many rules. If that's you, then I invite you to believe the good news of the gospel. That Christ has paid the penalty for all sin. And that by union with Christ, we stand before God perfectly forgiven. And second, if you're working really hard to meet the demands of the law of God, if God's word has you on a treadmill of performance and good works, if you're tempted to put up a false front and to pretend that you're something that you're not, then I invite you 
to believe the good news of the gospel. That Jesus met the demands of the law. And with his perfect life offered to us a perfect righteousness that we can have by union with him through faith. Finally, to those of you who have placed your faith in Jesus, I encourage you to continue to preach the gospel to yourselves. Live in the full freedom and the joy of your salvation. You will, of course, continue to sin. You will continue to struggle. But don't let the threat of hashtag justice hang over your head. For as Paul writes in Romans 8, 1 and 2, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ from the law of spirit of the law of sin and death. This is the word of God for us today. Let us pray. Father God, we pray that we might live in freedom. Freedom that doesn't come by our own labors, but a freedom that comes by resting in the perfect righteousness of Christ. Lord, I pray that you might cause us to see our need, to recognize that we are outside of your will by our normal human actions. I pray that you would allow us to see the free gift that's offered by faith in Christ, a a free gift of forgiveness, a free gift of, of full righteousness. And I pray that we might run to that, that we might, that we might cling to Christ and know the freedom that comes in Him. We ask these favors in Jesus' name. Amen.